As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and with F1 enjoying a brief pause before the geographically troubling triple header that takes in Mexico, Brazil and Qatar, there's plenty of big stories for us to catch up on. First and foremost, what's going on with the mooted Andretti takeover of Sauber, and is a proper American team really that important for F1? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to tackle those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, how are you doing? I guess you're preparing to board your lengthy flight to Mexico. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I'm, I'm. I've basically been mentally preparing for a few days now. <laughs> the idea of uh, the, going to Mexico itself is like less of an issue, but you um, you politely referred to it as was it geographically challenging, geographically demanding uh, triple header. That's that is a very generous way of putting it. It's the. I, I think I worked it out, and in total, with all the flights and stuff like this, it's like two days of my life that are going to be spent on airplanes over the next um three and a bit weeks but um can't complain very privileged to be in this position actually really looking forward to going back out to that part of the world again but um let's just say the process of getting there is not the uh, (laughs) most exciting part of the job yeah that's the advantage i've got i'm at least in the area relatively speaking still still a few hours away but do you want is this your is this your opportunity to tell the listeners about exactly where you are and what you've been doing because i feel like you're absolutely bursting to be able to say well, I'm having a lovely time. I'm in Arizona and in Flagstaff, Arizona, to be precise, so a bit to the south of the Grand Canyon. So I thought I'd, I'd stay out in the in the region and uh, have a few days to to look around the place. So yeah, went to Phoenix, had a look around there. Did briefly drive around the uh, the old F1 track. Most of it is there. They have built on a little bit of it, but you can you can do most of it. It's it's not the most uh, inspiring of old F1 tracks to visit, shall we say, because it is just a, a classic American city 
grid system, but uh, it's nice to do that. And yeah, so I've been driving around. Fantastic, like geology here. You you, you really see in in Arizona the the way the planet works because you see the forces of plate tectonics and erosion, and even a, there's even a massive meteor crater just out to the uh, to the east, the the the, the Beringer meteor crater, which I was at yesterday afternoon. So yeah, I've been, I've been having a, a great time. So if, if anyone's thinking about going to Arizona, or indeed not been thinking about it you, you should be it's uh it's a fantastic place so it's it's taken me a little bit by surprise i sort of went here because it's just it's just here and it's sort of a logical route on the way to mexico so uh that that's my obligation to the arizona tourist board uh satisfied so mark hughes how about you are you in a similarly inspiring area i'm in um the greater manchester and um yeah i mean it's it's got its own strengths but i don't know of any meteor craters around here I think um, if there were any other long ago um, being covered up, but it's got its it's got its attractions. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't write it off just because it's uh, it's not Arizona. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. I'm back after uh, Austin, and uh, I'll be uh, covering Mexico from here while you two are over there. Notoriously wary of the races at altitude. Evidently, that must be the uh, the uh, the problem. I do get awful headaches when I go to uh, Mexico. T- first two days. And apparently that's quite a common thing. Okay, I've, I've I've never suffered from that, but yeah, I guess that's uh, that's understandable. I'm at, I'm pretty much at, at Mexico City kind of altitude here. Obviously, it's a big plateau. What with the Grand Canyon being just to the north, you, you kind of need a, a a big plateau to make the Grand Canyon work. If you uh, if you see what I mean. So yeah, uh, that's that's returning to my uh, Arizona tourist board stuff. But yeah, let, let's get on with with what we should talk about. But still, kind of on a on a, a North American kind of vibe, Scott. There was a point. Only a few weeks ago, when the Andretti deal to acquire the Sauber team that runs under the Alfa Romeo banner looked moderately likely to happen. But since then, it has utterly collapsed. You broke that story last week. So can you explain what happened? First of all, I think it's important to important to note that I, I, I think a lot of people, including us, probably got swept up a little bit in the idea of the deal and, and maybe got a little bit misled about how, exactly how far along the process was. I think it was... I think there were under there were undeniably negotiations. There were undeniably quite a lot of discussions between the two parties, and I do think it it definitely progressed beyond sort of you know a fifty fifty chance of of happening. I'm pretty convinced by that. I just think the Andretti side always thought or always suggested that it was much further along than than it was in in reality. So the best I can understand is that the I guess what you might want to call like the base price of the team, what Sauber as a or, or Isla Investments, which owns Sauber Engineering and Sauber Motorsport, would be bought for. I think that was a price that Andretti thought was realistic, and they were happy to to pay. That's been widely reported to be around three hundred and fifty million euros for eighty percent of the controlling company. But it appears that once it actually reached the point of stepping up the negotiations. I think that's where it got complicated uh, because at that point, the suggestion is that um, that Sauber and in particular the owner, Finn Rousing, a Swedish billionaire, member of one of Europe's richest families, um, wanted more. The, the, what, yeah, what we called the base price of the team didn't change. But in addition to that, there was a suggestion that he wanted a 250 million euro guarantee paid up front. The idea this being that this was a guarantee of 50 million euros a season funding for the team for the next five years. I guess in protection of the Andretti deal 
scuppering something like the Alfa Romeo title sponsorship, whether that wouldn't have continued in the Andretti era and the potential for Andretti to come in and perhaps not quite invest in the in the team the way that Sauber's current owners actually plan to increase the budget for the next few years. We've done a story on the race before a few weeks ago about how they want to run at the budget cap for the first time next year. So there are plans to escalate the running budget of the team. And I think Rousing wanted uh, Andretti to hold that up if they were going to if they were going to come in. I mean, we can get into this in, in a little bit more maybe, but I, th- I my guess is this was a combination of Rousing and, and co realising that actually there was probably a bit more potential value in the team than initially suggested. So that's an excuse to raise the price. But I also think he does genuinely care about the team. He's not a motivated seller. So you want to protect it and make sure that Andretti is going to be really serious which is why you chuck on a load of money to ensure that the team's got a really good running budget for the next few years if you are going to hand it over. Yeah, and to be fair, it's not unusual for potential team sales to be connected to those kinds of assurances. Obviously, whenever there were talks in the past about uh, about what was Toro Rosso, what's now AlphaTauri, uh, being sold by Red Bull, they always wanted a guarantee it would remain in Faenza because obviously that's that's quite a, uh, an important locality for the team. And in fact, the Sauber team, Hinville has basically built up around Sauber and uh, even when Peter Sauber owned it that was a that was a big deal to make sure that the team was kept there because there was an obligation that was felt to the area to the locality because it was so important to the to the economic success of the of the area and it, it's good that the the, the, new, the relatively new ownership <laughs> they've obviously owned Sauber for quite a while now it's continuing that but yeah it's it's interesting the way it's uh, the way it's been derailed and a shame for the Andretti side but also also quite understandable uh, that, that this has happened do you think Scott the fact that it, it got out publicly that this was happening played a played a part as well um well the, this is this is mostly my opinion I guess a, a, a little bit of informed opinion but I suspect it didn't go down well at all on the rousing side because when you think um that he is to all intents and purposes, the the owner of the team. He must be the most anonymous billionaire that's been involved in Formula One. He's taken quite a different approach to owning a Formula One team and being worth a lot of money than, say, Lawrence Stroll is. Um, You certainly don't see uh, Finn Rousing doing hostage-styles videos every time something annoys him. So I I think that Rousing is someone who likes to operate in private. I think he likes to do things a certain way. And whether it was just because that's the way it's done over there, whether that's because uh, there was an idea of just trying to sort of drum up a little bit of attention for the brand, whether it's because they wanted to put a bit of pressure on the Sauber side, the the suggestion is that it was very much the Andretti camp that was leaking a lot of it and, and pushing the narrative that it was a, a foregone conclusion. Um, I, so I don't know if that, necess- that I don't think that would have then turned made Rousing and Co turned around and be just like, well, that's it, no deal with these people. But I suspect it would have made them question exactly how sincere the um, the approach was and how serious Andretti was about the project longer term, and therefore, um, you know, wanting to make sure you have those assurances so that they don't sell the team and and turn it into the subject of speculation for years to come. Yeah. So what you're saying, Scott, is it was your fault that the deal fell through. Because you, you you were the one that publicised it. Yeah, it could, it might well be. Um, I I like to have, think I have that level of uh, of, of of influence. Um, but um, if that is the case, then I guess I, I owe Michael Andretti an apology. <laughs> 
Well, your main your main role was uh, was breaking the fact that it definitely collapsed. So, uh, so if anything, you were the uh, you were the kind of death knell for it. But uh, from what I understand, on the Andretti side, there were quite a few people that seemed to know about what was going on. And and from what I'm told, the Andretti side were trying quite hard to keep it under wraps because I think they knew who they were dealing with and the importance of keeping this quiet. But inevitably, with anything like this, the more people that know, the the greater the chance there is of something leaking out about it particularly when it's such a, a high profile thing so i i guess there perhaps there was an element of an inevitability that it would eventually get out as well can i can i uh steal your job briefly ed and just ask I, I have a question for the pair of you to answer as people who are more experienced than i am did this um did this element of all oh, andretti interested in formula one andretti wants to come into formula one did it seem more serious to the two of you rather than just one of those many kind of oh this would be nice if this kind of happened hypothetical stories yeah, it, it was certainly a clearly a serious interest because we know there was the the finance behind it and we know there was the financial structure for this kind of acquisition so yeah, we were taking it seriously. I mean, I think I remember saying that the devil would always be in the detail on, on deals like this. And obviously, you've run through some of the details that, that ultimately meant they were quite far apart. So yeah, I'd say I, I took it took it seriously as a, as a prospect. Although, obviously, even though things at one stage seemed to look quite encouraging, it was, it was obviously never certain because these kinds of deals are always hugely complicated. How about you, Mark? No, it was always credible, especially with, you know, the... Andretti, it's it's a fully established um, team and, and a very high profile championship. It's not quite the same as building and designing your own cars, running in a spec series, but it, all the same, it's um, at a very high level. And yes, it would have it would have um, for sure attracted um, people to come along with it in terms of backing and sponsorship. So yeah, it was fully credible. It always depends on you need you need a credible buyer, which which did exist. You needed a, a willing seller. Which willing perhaps was uh, might be overstating it on the uh, on the rousing side, but they were certainly open to to talk. So you know, for for this kind of deal to happen, you need both sides to to want to go for it, and all of those complicated details to work. But it made a, a lot of sense, and obviously, the Andretti name coming into Formula One would have been would have been fantastic. Who wouldn't want that to happen? And in fact, on that topic, Mark, how big a loss do you think it is to F one? given that there's this desire, not just for an American-owned team. You know, Haas is an American-owned team, but it's not really a recognisably American team, really, is it? Especially as it's got the uh, the Russian Federation uh, colours uh, all over it. And, of course, Williams, since being taken over by Doralton Capital, is an American-owned team. So there is, a, there is American ownership, but an Andretti team of all teams, even though it would be based in Switzerland and it would still be Sauber at heart, that name and that that connection to the US would have made this very much more of a of a flag waving American team in terms of identity, wouldn't it? Andretti is such a recognisable name. I guess so, but I think um, I mean it looks like first of all it looks like everyone's taken off in America anyway, thanks to the Netflix effect. But I, I think the thing that would absolutely set it alight more than a team would be a front running potential race winning American driver, and. No disrespect to Saba, but I, I think no matter who who that team is owned by, it would be unlikely in the short term to be providing a car which will have that race winning potential. Um, so I don't think having an American owned team would naturally actually really matter in the short term, unless it was fighting for championships with recognised brands like Ferrari and Mercedes and McLaren, etc. 
regularly going head to head with the best. But I think the greatest potential to have won of, of, of that Andretti takeover wasn't who owned the team, but the fact that it was going to bring Colton Herter to F1. And if he could give, if he could have given us like a George Russell style demonstration of his F1 potential in a less than fully competitive car, just two or three times a season, which led him to get his butt into a top car subsequently, then that would be something genuinely inspiring and exciting for the American fans and therefore for F1 as well. And I'm sure that day will come, whether it's Colton or somebody else, I'm sure the day will come when we do get an absolute top-notch, you know, world-class talent running in Formula One. And I think um, when it it happens, it will be a, a, a very big deal. Um, there's now the real will in Formula One for that to happen. And um, before it was just on one of those, it would be nice to have if, if, if it happened. But I think there's now a real will to make it happen. You talk about the value of um, the American driver specifically. Ed, you obviously heard from one of the more one, one of the other hopefuls who's, I guess, on a more conventional path to F1 because in a build-up to the US Grand Prix weekend, obviously Williams added Logan Sargent to... Um, to their to their racing academy, their young driver program. And obviously, I know that Logan's not got the the career momentum of a uh, of say like a George Russell or a Charles Leclerc or, or or Orlando Norris when they came through the junior ranks. But he seems to be a you know at, at the very least a very reasonable prospect. And um, he was sort of suggesting that the Williams deal was actually giving him a serious chance of sort of pursuing that dream. Whereas um, for a while, it looked like he'd be off the road to f1 ladder even uh even at f3 level because i don't, don't think he was even meant to really race in f3 this season yeah he was he was a little bit reticent to talk about uh his plans and what would have happened but i, I think reading between the lines of, of what he said and the fact that an indycar test was cancelled once he got this this williams deal it has swung his career back to to europe if you want to look at it that way it sounds like he's going to be doing f2 next year and that's been facilitated by the williams deal as well, so yeah, Logan Sargent is the is the one who's therefore going to be in the most obvious place, and he, he's an interesting driver. He was kind of the best unattached of the the junior drivers in terms of of what he'd achieved, and I think actually his his season in F three this year was quite a good stealth season. If you look at the results, they don't look that special. Certainly not for a driver who was in the championship fight last year, but he was driving for Shiraz, which is not a great team. And if you look back at Shiraz's results at that level in recent years Logan Sargent's are dramatically better than uh, than any, anyone else has, has achieved recently so he's, he's clearly a, a good driver I'm not sure I haven't kind of followed him closely enough to say what the ultimate potential is but he's, he's certainly a driver that looks like he's got the, the ability to evolve into a, certainly at very least a credible Grand Prix driver although uh, I, I've yet to see whether he's kind of got that the sort of Theo Pichet sort of buzz behind him but uh, we'll probably le- learn some of that in in how he gets on when he steps up to F2 but he was right there with Boucher and, and Piastri in, in F3 last year but just couldn't make that uh, make that step up but I think the point about a, a driver who's not just competing but who's, who's front running is is the really really important one and, and the Andretti Sauber thing was good as Herter was so central to it that it could have been a proper long-term thing because for just a team to take an American driver, let's use Herter as an example, because he can't spend a year testing 
you kind of have to treat the first year as very much an acclimatization and and testing year. I'm sure you could still have some some moments, but it's a proper long term commitment for a US driver. And this team would have had that. And then, as Mark said, it could have led to a move to a bigger team or if the Sauber team was to move up the grid, which is perfectly possible in the longer term, thanks to the way F1's structured now with the cost cap, the, the better Concorde, et cetera, then we could have gradually seen him, him in machinery that was that was capable of, of running at the front. But one thing, Scott, you did mention that Herta was quite central to it. You did dig into this quite a bit. What actually was the, the plan had the Andretti Sauber thing happened? Because he, he was short of a few super license points, wasn't he? Which Which seems a little bit ridiculous given his qualities. Yeah, he he does, or well, he did, and he continues to expose the flaw in the super license system, which is that uh, IndyCar is just criminally undervalued in terms of what it contributes to a driver's super license total. You need 40, 40 super license points to be eligible for a full F one super license, and Herta had thirty two, I believe, for his results in IndyCar. Uh, that and that included finishing third in the championship. So he's a multiple race winner in that series, and he's finished. He finished third in his second season in IndyCar. But the FIA super license system deems him unworthy of driving in Formula One, which is uh, which is pretty crazy. So I, I don't think he was an option for for 2022. I think they'd have loved to to have made it happen, but uh, subject to the FIA, FIA making an unprecedented uh, exception or perhaps a little bit more likely changing the appendix L license rules to actually make it make it possible. Um, he wouldn't have been able to do it without outside interference, basically. Um, so I think the, the likeliest thing would have been a few FP1 outings, an intensive simulator and testing program where possible, and then get in for 2023. But there was even a suggestion that he was in the Sauber simulator, uh, what would have been a couple of weeks ago now, in anticipation of uh, doing FP1 at Austin. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that is true, but that is some something I've seen from someone reputable, let's say. Um, so I think it was. I think it was very serious, but it's um, died a pretty quick death, hasn't it? Yeah, all gone now, sadly. But we may see in the future uh, something happening with with Colton Herter. Obviously, there's a there's a desire on his side and uh, the side of some of his backers to get into F1. Of course, his father, Brian, did have a brief dalliance with F1. He was keen to try and get in. I was actually there at Donington Park when he tested a, a Minardi. Uh, that would have been, what, 2002, um, interviewed him on the day. So uh, I was one of the few people to see him in in action. And I, and I think, actually, Herzer, not only has he got a lot of ability, but I think, I don't know Colton particularly, but but knowing Brian, he's a very kind of intelligent character he, he'd have the right sort of mentality to how to approach Formula One and I and I know that that's been instilled into into Colton as well so hopefully in the future we might see uh see a chance for him to to make a go of it in Formula One well Scott staying roughly with the territory of the Andretti Sauber deal F1 team values there were some numbers you were bandying around about the value of the sale but it's certainly true that with the cost cap in force, the, the more balanced Concord agreement of last year, we are going to see more interest in acquiring F1 teams, aren't we? And probably some increasingly large numbers involved. Yeah, well, we've already seen that extra interest, haven't we? The, you know, the, the championship's financial foundations are shifting. They, they, they already have to a, to a large degree. And I think, and the value of the 10 teams has been further secured by making an entry more exclusive. We know that there's this anti-dilution fund which could force a new team to pay $200 million that would be shared evenly among the existing teams. It's based, that's a, that exists as compensation for sharing 
have for the existing teams having to share F1's revenues with a new team because it's obviously it's an extra slice out of the pie. It's often mis I think it's misunderstood that that fund. It's not meant to be a turn off for any team. And you know, close shop only ten teams ever. The current guys on the grid, but it, it's just meant to be a. I would call it like an anti-chancer regulation, basically, to stop anyone uh, just rocking up and trying to make an F1 team work, especially because it is now more appealing. So because of this, we've had, you know, uh, multiple teams have now attracted investment. You know, McLaren, uh, uh, McLaren, Mercedes, Aston Martin, Williams have all had new ownership come in, a change in the shareholding structure, fresh investment, all of this. So it's really... It's a really interesting time. And if we take the McLaren buy-in, for example, so that was MSP Sports Capital. They did a deal for, I think it was £185 million for a stake in McLaren Racing, which includes the IndyCar program, that can grow to 33%. So that's kind of easy. You just times that by three, which means that McLaren Racing, if you did it in that way, and that was exactly how it worked, which obviously I know actually quite isn't quite that, but we can say that McLaren Racing as a whole is worth at least £550 million, which is $750 million, give or take. So we're now looking at the point where people like McLaren Racing CEO Zach Brown are saying, well, the the era of the billion-dollar F1 team is really close. He thinks that will happen in the space of a few years. I've no doubt that the likes of like Mercedes and Ferrari, probably Red Bull, are probably already worth in excess of that in terms of, or they will be very, very soon because you you do that valuation. I got sort of Toto Wolf to explain this in real terms and, and those valuations are based on revenue um, and, you know, earnings. Sometimes you can do it in a few different ways, but the idea is, is that the, the higher the revenue, the more the profit, the more the team's worth. And we're getting to a point now where everyone pretty much among F1 team ownership thinks these teams are all going to be turning profits soon, which is such a departure from where it was before. It was ludicrous that Mercedes was arguably financially the healthiest of all of the teams because it was only requiring whatever 20, 30 million pounds from Daimler to prop it up, prop up its spending. But this is the most successful team in F1 history with an unprecedented amount of uh, you know tv time and advertising equivalency and, and and all of this other stuff and it was still being propped up by income from the parent company essentially that's insane if mercedes is still requiring funding i know that they they were spending loads more than most teams but if they were if they were still requiring that what hope did the smaller teams have but this is all changing now so it really is it is very interesting. I'm curious to see what it does actually mean in real terms and what impact it has, if any, from a sporting point of view. But I would say it's a it's looking genuinely healthy at the moment to to run an F1 team, which I, we you know there have been times where we couldn't have couldn't have said that in recent years. Yeah, I think that point you make, Scott, about um, you know the, the the amount of money needed to 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 support the team is a very good one, and it, it it's it's always been that way, and until until now it's been legislated um against but it's it's always been that you would spend as much as was available so what was driving the costs up was the fact that the money was there and available and so because it was there and available it would get sucked in and spent plus a little bit more which you would then pull in from wherever you could and that was just in the competitive nature of F1 and that wasn't ever going to change and it was always going to be like that and it was be- since since it be- Formula One became so 
uh, requiring such big teams and such massive investments, it was pretty much locking in the existing top teams as the top teams um, because there's only so much money to go about. And this at least had been recognized. It was, it was obvious for probably the last 10 years. I'd, I'd written many columns about it saying, you know, the technology is not what's driving the budgets. It's the fact that the money is there that's driving the budgets. And so the legislation is now, well, you, it doesn't matter if it's there or not. You can't spend it. You're not allowed to spend more than X. Therefore, you know, with this income coming in, you'll make a profit. And it's um, it, it sort of had to save the teams from themselves because being competitive entities, that's how the teams would, would behave. And that's how they should have behaved. It's just we weren't giving them or oh, Formula One wasn't giving, giving them a, um, a, an environment in which they could be saved from themselves. And, and, now, the, and now it has. Well, that phrase, saving the teams from themselves, that was exactly the one Ross Braun used when the, the cost cap regulations were, were announced at Austin in 2019, when they unveiled the what were originally going to be the 21 rules. Of course, the technical regs were punted forward to next year, but the, uh, the, the cost cap did come in uh, for this year. And it's interesting, actually, this whole process about making the teams more financially viable. While the COVID-19 pandemic obviously had a big negative impact on Formula One, it did actually force you know, the Concorde to be uh, to be pushed through in a, in a certain way. It also led to the cost cap being lowered as well. So in the kind of the long haul, the COVID-19 pandemic might actually have, have proved to be uh, perversely a, a, a force for, for a positive effect in terms of making the teams a little bit more sustainable. And, and yeah, people are, are comparing the, the, the kind of potential value of F1 teams to, you know, NFL franchises, that kind of thing. You, don't, you won't get an NFL franchise for for... I think the least valuable one's about 2.2 billion in terms of its estimated value, and they go way, way, way beyond that. So that that's what uh, they they want. And obviously, people will want new teams to be created, but the key is to shore up the the, the ten existing uh, teams. And actually, how improved it is. Williams is a, is a great example because they were a team that didn't have vast potential for shareholder cash injections, and they were just kind of limping along even after they had that that good couple of years when the uh, the V6 Turbo Hybrid rules came in in 2014, finishing third in the championship twice, that didn't work for them. So they had on-track relative success, but they were still struggling financially. And basically the reason the team was sold in the end was the fact that they they ran out of credit. They, they'd sold off what they could. They'd sold off a, a, a majority stake in advanced engineering. They just had nothing left to uh, uh, nothing left to do to, to get the money in to, to keep the, the team operating, hence the sale. But yeah, I think going forward, F1 teams are in potentially promising positions. I guess the key question is how successfully teams can push the cost cap, shall we say, because they're, they're, it's very well structured. There's lots of uh, penalties, etc. for transgressors. Huge penalties can be, uh, can be imposed for anybody breaking them. But what do you think, Mark? Do you do you think it's going to be a little bit too easy for particularly those organisations that are aligned with manufacturers just to bury things going on? You know, if you're Mercedes, do you know if you've, if there's a little group doing some work in, in Stuttgart buried away that's on somebody else's books? I mean, there's always potential for that. There's always potential for doing other programmes. Um, you know, you might want to do America's Cup, for example. And you, you could have the same some of the same people working on those projects. But it's, I think, you've got to be... Um, at the, the the if if you are if you are sort of caught 
doing something like that that that, that um, is against absolutely against the um, intention of these regulations. Um, I I think the the threat is that the penalties could be draconian, and to the extent that you know you could if. They're talking about a possible ban from the championship. They could, I think, it's specified that the penalties could run up to include a, a ban from the championship. In which case, you know, you are risking the very existence of your team because it's um, can't very well sustain its existence if it's if, if it's not racing. So, I think a lot of it is going to depend on um, just the fear of of, of what. The penalties would be if if you decided to do to do that to subvert the regulations like that, um, and the rest of it's going to be done by um, pretty pretty exhaustive um, uh, accounting and um, what what are, what are the what are the guys called the check your accounting I forgot the name of them auditors Aud- auditing yeah auditing um, pretty exhaustive auditing so yeah I think. Um, you know, there'll be. I'm, I'm sure there'll be some um, bumps along the way. Is is this because it's a completely new system, and there'll be suspicions and discussions. But by and by, it's uh, it's going to be a much better system than uh, any that we've had so far. We've obviously talked a bit there about um, you know a, a lot from a financial perspective and a business perspective, both from the the interest in getting involved in F1 and you only have to look at the 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 ownership structures now of F1 teams the days of the well the Williams sale was kind of um a microcosm of F1 shift overall wasn't it it was the 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 loss of the family owned element and it now it's owned by a an American an American investment firm so the way the people who own F1 teams is very different now and it is very business driven and Mark explained there really well how that financial accounting auditing side of things is going to be an important part going forward. So just, I'm not playing devil's advocate as such, but possibly asking this question on behalf of a few people listening who might think this is an awful lot of financial related talk for a sport. Is there a danger that the way where F1 is now or, or what it's trying to be under Liberty, is is there such a thing as the sport being too business driven or is that just the way global sport works now because to me it just seems like everyone f1's catching up with where the likes of football and a bunch of american sports are i don't think it's necessarily for the worst but what what do you guys think yeah it's inevitable isn't it It, there's so there's so much money involved it's so big it just can't fail to be And and if it's not run properly like a business and regulated like a business toto wolf has made this point before about if you're you're doing things in the in the financial world, there's all sorts of uh, regulations and constraints about what you can and cannot do. So I'd say it is just F1 catching up with what it is. So, yeah, uh, I think what will be interesting is, is when we get to a point when inevitably there'll be some kind of challenge of the cost cap, won't there? There'll be some case. And, of course, we should say whistleblowing is another possibility for for how uh, word might get out if anybody is uh, is doing anything uh, uh, questionable. So, yeah, uh, just, just the nature of the beast, isn't it? Everybody wants sport to be pure, don't they? And un, unfettered by finances, but that's just reality. Yeah, I think if if you work backwards from where you want to be, which is the 
quality of the racing and the closeness of the racing and the equal opportunities for all the competitors, if you work backwards from that, you have to arrive at something like this behind it. It's just the nuts and bolts behind that situation. And whether it's interesting the fan or not, well, you know, the, it doesn't, the, the fan doesn't have to engage in it if he's not interested in, in that part of it. What, you can still just watch it as a sport. And that's hopefully going to be a more level playing field. And that's it's just working backwards from that. Yeah, that's the key. Sport stand or fall on how good the sporting product is, how exciting it is, how unpredictable it is, whether people are gripped by the storylines within it. And the, the financial stuff can all be in the background to that obviously at times in formula one it hasn't been because budgets are so essential but that's the same in a lot of categories you can plot football club success by their their wage spending etc and it correlates relatively closely but the idea with the cost cap is that this does create a, a level playing field and it, and it isn't an unfettered spending war but let, let's see how it pans out over the, the coming years it's going to take time for all of this to to level level and self-correct so it, it, it's going to be a long time before we see anything approaching 10 teams of, of similar size, but it, it's in the it's in the right direction at least. Well, Mark, we can't let a podcast go by without talking a little about the Amazing World Championship battle. On last week's podcast, I did promise we'd address a question asked by the Race Members Club member Danny Donowski, so here it is. The question is, in every race this season where Max hasn't had a problem, he's never finished lower than second. For the incident he's played a part in causing, do you think it's worth him taking a less aggressive approach in the future since Lewis has been able to keep up with him in the title fight? Could you argue Max's aggressive approach is what's given him success this year? Do you think it would force Max to be less aggressive in the future if he lost the title? Hi, Danny. Um, yeah, I mean... I'm sort of getting where you're coming from by by how you worded your question, but um, the problem with saying yes or no is that it, to me, it always depends on the exact situation, and it's not for me. There isn't one approach is better than the other. It, I mean, if you recall how big a drubbing Senna gave Prost, I mean, not in terms of championships, it was even Stevens, but in terms of just how often he beat him in in races or in qualifying, and that was by attacking full on and making absolutely zero compromise. Now, other times, that could have lost them a championship. It's one of those things that can only be judged in hindsight. It's not a hard and fast rule. So, yeah, in this case, if Max had backed out at Silverstone, say, he'd be more comfortably in the lead. But so what? That attitude has brought him the success he's had so far. So we can only be who we are, really. There's a little bit of tuning of approach that can be done around the margins, but you race with an attitude. And Do I think he'd be less aggressive if he lost the title? No, because I don't think he'd reason that he'd lost it because of his approach. He'd reason that he'd got the position partly because of his approach. So that approach has to be a natural fit with the person because these are split-second, high-pressure decisions. So, um, yeah, and my take is is that there isn't a correct approach. It's uh, something that might turn out to be correct in hindsight or incorrect. I, I would just add that I don't think it would force Max to be less aggressive in the future if he lost the title purely because Max wouldn't Max would never accept that he was aggressive in the first place. I think the way that Max has evolved as a person and as a driver, he was able to have that realization in 2018 that he was going a bit far in in one aspect of uh, of his approach, but he flat out refuses to to consider that he's um, aggressive in any way. Pretty much, he doesn't. He certainly doesn't think he ever oversteps the, the the mark. He he's clearly very happy with his approach, and I think he's um, I think he's so he's so confident and 
he's so assured about the way he goes about things and he has so much uh what's the best way to put it he's he's so content in the way he goes about things as well that I don't think he sees any reason. He sees it as something that ebbs and flows, as Mark was suggesting, rather than something that needs to be binary at any, at any given time. So I just think he would look back on it and just say, didn't win it, I'll try and win it next year. And I, I obviously, like there'll be an element of his analysis will go deeper than that. But on a personal level, I don't see him changing dramatically one way or the other. And also, I think it's worth noting, I don't think his approach has been particularly problematic this year. He has been. Uh, as Danny pointed out in the question, he has been consistently sensible and got the approaches. The only times he hasn't finished first or second, he had the ninth in Hungary where obviously he had damage with the car and he did a good job just to salvage a couple of points there. Then the two collisions and the blowout of Baku where he was he was going to win. So I, th- I think Verstappen's judgment largely has been, has been pretty good. Turkey was a good example. He didn't quite have the car to, to fight for victory there, but he made sure he banked the second place, didn't get overexcited, didn't make a mistake overreaching obviously those two wheel-to-wheel flashpoints one of which was uh that the stewards blamed on Hamilton at Silverstone one of which was blamed on Verstappen at, at Monza uh are the, the kind of key flashpoints but I think all round his, his approach to the championship has been pretty good I, I he says it's not aggressive I'd say I'd say it's it's fairly aggressive but not not in a, a kind of uncontrolled ridiculous way I don't think being aggressive is a bad thing and the point Mark made about Senna is that he kind of raised the bar for how aggressive an, an approach for a driver has to be in terms of extracting the, the most for the car that was just the part of the evolution of of Grand Prix racing it, it's it's the way it's the way it's gone now so I I think Verstappen's approach has been pretty sensible and I, I suspect when it comes down to it we'll have to see how the final races play out but this there's a good chance this is going to be one of those championships that when you look at it it's just going to be on those little twists and turns of fates that decide who wins it because right now they're, they're both putting together with a few little areas here and there, fantastic campaigns. You could pick some. You could pick basically something from every single weekend that has influenced the def- destination of the the title fight. And I'm not just talking small details, but like things that would massively change the direction of it. The one thing I wanted to add on what you were saying there, Ed, was I actually think you know Russia was quite a good example of like what Max is capable of doing. Um, he would never pretend that his own you know brilliance suddenly turned a mediocre result into finishing second he was lucky with how the race played out late on but he was very very good at the way he worked his way into the position he was in in the first place it was one of those races where made good progress early on and then the progress stalled while he was in the sort of uh, I guess sort of the middle of that lead midfield group and he was looking at a lower points finish but it was still going to be a good lower points finish he never got frustrated during that that um that that phase of the Grand Prix. Earlier in the race, he judged a few moves really nicely. The move on Bottas, for example, in the first stint was absolutely excellent. So he'd put himself in a position to, yeah, he got lucky and 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 that boosted that that end result. But it was just one of those drives that I just thought, you know, you you're getting the most out of what you can. You're not doing anything stupid. If he'd come of that come away from that Grand Prix with six, eight, ten points, it would have been a good you'd have still reflected on that as that's a good six, eight, ten points towards the title battle considering he started last and it's difficult to overtake there. So yeah, I, I think there are times where his approach will catch him out. Um, I think I, I kind of viewed both the incidents between them as a as a racing incident really and you can argue it either way. So yeah, Max could have bailed out of either of them but at the same time, if he was any more compromising as a, a or any 
sort of more generous as a driver wheel to wheel, he wouldn't have um, held the lead against Lewis at the start at Imola, for example, and he wouldn't have sent that move down the inside of him in Spain. So there'll be times where it pays off, some times where it doesn't. What you can't fault Verstappen for is is just how brilliantly consistent he has been when it has all been in his control. And that Sochi example is is a good example of what I'd call aggression in a positive way because he was on course for seventh he was sat seventh in the queue I don't think he was going to make up any ground but when the rain came he was instantly able to start passing some people it wasn't just the timing of the, of the, of the pit stop that helped him because he did start making up ground when it was six in the wet and that will have been the point where he thought right this is an opportunity to to turn a, an okay salvage result into something much more special so I, I think he saw that there he wasn't conservative in that moment and, and that's that's what I sort of mean about the aggression I, I think Aggression comes across in some ways as, as a pejorative thing because if you talk about somebody in the way they conduct themselves in everyday life as being massively aggressive, that's not really a, a very positive thing, is it? But in sporting competition, it, it is a positive. It's just got to be controlled aggression. And for the most part, I think I think Verstappen does that. Scott, let's talk about another uh, top driver. He's not part of the championship fight this year, but I think we all expect him to be part of the of a, of a world championship battle in the future. Charles Leclerc, you've been getting excited recently by what you called his anonymous brilliance. So can you explain yourself? Uh, yeah, well, it was something that we talked about a little bit after the um, uh, after the race in, in the United States. I just think Leclerc's getting into a nice groove at the moment where um, we've, already, we, we, we've seen it for him from him before just this ability to have these weekends where he flies under the radar just because of how effortlessly good a job he does and that's qualifying at the front of the midfield race at the front of the midfield have a trouble-free run to whatever the circumstances of the race allow him to to achieve whether that's a third fourth fifth whatever it's a bit similar to some of the drives that Lando Norris has put in at the start of the year but I think Leclerc's on this little run at the moment of you know qualifying in the top five and finishing finishing fourth and with the exception of uh, Russia, where obviously he had the grid penalty for starters because he had the new Ferrari hybrid system there, uh, and then obviously in the in the race he was on course for a really good result and got caught out by the downpour at, at the end. Um, he's just uh, he's in a nice little purple patch at the moment, um, and I think I just the, the motivation for that was as discussed on the the post race podcast for Austin was that. Leclerc had just had one of those races where like barely features in the broadcast. He was almost picked up by accident whenever he <laughs> appeared on screen. He was like, you know, in the background of a of, of someone else's pit stop or Verstappen was come had made his stop and was coming out and picking off the the midfielders who had yet to stop so he was coming across Leclerc. It was one of that race, one of those races where if you're not if you're not just sort of keeping an eye on what he's doing, you get to the end of the Grand Prix and you're just like, "Oh, Leclerc is just Started fourth, finished fourth, nothing else happened. Did it at Monza. Um, he's done it a, a few times now. And the more competitive that Ferrari gets, the more obviously it's uh, it's it's obvious to 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 see what see what he's doing. I just hope that the upward trajectory they're on continues for next year because he's just too good a driver not to have in the the, the title battle. And um, if he had a car to rival the Red Bull and the Ferrari, uh, the Red Bull and the Mercedes, then Leclerc's brilliance wouldn't be anonymous. It would be in front of us. It would be massively uh, obvious. It would be a key part of every weekend's narrative and the title battle overall because he's absolutely on that level. Um, I'm just really hoping that we see him in that environment sooner rather than later. 
Yeah, and he's stringing together a good run of results, and I think he's been fourth in three of the last four races, which in the machinery he's got is uh, is, is very strong. But you have to say, Mark, not only is Leclerc doing well, but in, in science they've got a, a great teammate for him as well who's having a, a, a fine season uh, as well. I think Ferrari have made quite a shrewd choice that they've got a lineup now that once they do get back to the front, which we assume they will do uh, uh, eventually, they're going to be in a, in a really strong position with what they've got. Yeah, I think with that lineup, the um, the sums greater than the the total of the parts. I think they they work really really well as a team. Um, Science is bringing an, an extra dimension to how they think about the, the car and the performance of the car, and it just dovetails beautifully with um, the, the the program of, of making progress from the fairly low base it was at when uh, when they when they each joined. So I think well not sorry not when science joined, and so I think yeah uh, it's whether Carlos can push himself to get consistently up at Charles' level in qualifying, I don't know, but he's um, he's not that far away, and this is his first season. So yeah, you, you get the sense that. Carlos has to apply himself and think about it a little bit more to get to the the level that Charles naturally gets to, but that doesn't mean he can't get there. And he's a very, very determined character, um, very quick in his own right, um, but also very intelligent and also knows which buttons to press. And it's, it's just he's doing it in a way that doesn't put him at odds with with Leclerc's camp. You know, it's, it's there aren't two camps there. They are working together, but he's still able to compete. And it's a, that's quite a rare thing, and it's a, it's a special quality. Yeah, and they, they've just different approaches gelling well. Uh, and I think we always kind of suspected it would go that way. I think we did, when we did our, our piece ranking all the driver lineups, didn't we put Ferrari as the top one at, at, at the start of the year because because of the, the kind of all-round level, because you can't judge a driver lineup just by the number one driver. That might be, that would be a different equation, but it, it was clear that, that this this could be a very good lineup and and it's certainly d- delivered on that. So looking forward to those two getting to the front. Well, Scott, let's just finish off with a look ahead to the Mexican Grand Prix. Other than the fact you've got that long flight to look forward to, what are you expecting there? Red Bull all the way? Uh, well, yeah, if it goes to previous form, then yes. Um, we know that it's uh, the Honda package works very well at higher altitude. The Mercedes struggles a little bit more. Um, but let's, let's see. Um, it is... Uh, this has been a season where previous form books tend to be a little bit misleading. But the reason I kind of expect it to be correct for Mexico and also Brazil afterwards is that the other elements of the form book that have been been disproven, I suppose, this year have been sort of more car characteristic led. Whereas I think this is specifically power unit characteristic. And I, I don't really think that would or should have changed too much this year. If it was something where... You know the previous previously the aero characteristics of the two cars had defined a certain trait. I might think it would be different because obviously the floor rules this year. Mercedes has been pegged back. The Red Bull's a lot better. Blah blah blah. This is engine specific, so I still kind of expect that baked in Red Bull advantage to exist when we go to Mexico. And who knows? Maybe we'll also have a, another Mercedes engine change there to add to the fifty thousand we've had this season. Yeah, we're, we're half expecting that to happen. Uh, in in Hamilton's case, given how long the uh, the V sixes are lasting, it's a logical place to do it. But Mark, what do we know about the reasons why the 
Honda package seems to work better at altitude in Mexico compared to, to the Mercedes. I think the limitation for the Mercedes is the, the, the heat generated by the, um, the sizing of the turbo. And to compensate for um, the, the lower oxygen content, this is something like 23 or 25% less oxygen in the air, a turbocharger naturally, because it meets less resistance, will just spin faster on that. In theory, you should compensate for the thinner air just by spinning faster. But if you are limited in how much faster you can spin by the the heat generated in that process, you will obviously not be as competitive as a an engine which isn't limited in that way. And I think this is where Mercedes has just got a built in disadvantage. And they've you know they they've looked at the 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 global requirement over the whole season for what will be the best power unit for them and. I think they've just decided that this would offer the best. The, 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 what they've settled on offers the best global solution, even if it means they're not particularly competitive at high altitude. It's not, you know, it's not a something which is going to um, define their season for them. So, yeah, I think that's that. That will probably still hold. Um, the the Renault is another engine which goes very well at that altitude, and I think given that Fernando Alonso's got a fresh one in the back. Because um, he took the grid penalty in Austin, I think we should be looking for something um, a bit special from him too. Yeah, he's had a couple of difficult weekends in terms of performance and incidents. So yeah, perhaps due a, a, a big Alonso performance, and certainly yeah, all indications do point to this being a Red Bull circuit, and probably Mexico is that that should be the most predictable on paper of the remaining ones. But we've been confounded before by this uh, this very close championship fight, and because the cars are. Uh, the car packages are relatively similar in terms of their performance potential. It doesn't take much for things to swing either way. But yeah, this this will be down as a as one that Verstappen really needs to win. And who knows what uh, what Sergio Perez can do given his uh, his improving recent performances. Obviously, if he's a, on the off chance he does get ahead of Verstappen, he's not going to be able allowed to win the race given he'll he'll need to to seed it. But he could give the, the Mexican fans plenty to cheer about. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to support us, there's a very easy way to do it with a quick review on your podcast provider of choice. And remember to check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s and our MotoGP podcast. For the latest machinations in F1, head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen and make sure you check in with our YouTube channel as well. We're off to Mexico City now and we'll be back very soon with everything you need to know from the Mexican Grand Prix. (laughs) 